Hello, listeners, and thank you for being here for a couple of criminals. My name is Mariah. And my name is Anton, and we are your average couple reviewing your not-so-average crimes. This episode is number seven of a 50-part series that we are doing where the episodes are based around a different crime in each state in the United States in alphabetical order. So today's case will be based on a crime in Connecticut. Before I get into this case, Anton is going to give us his best joke for us all. Let's hear it, Anton. All right, Mariah. What did the sushi say to the bee? I don't know. Wasabi. <laughs> okay. I want to give a quick precautionary warning to listeners that this case does involve minors and sexual assault allegations. Today, I am reviewing a crime that happened in Prospect, Connecticut. Side note, I don't know for you, Anton, or you listeners, but I have certain words that in my head I pronounce a certain way in order to remember how to spell it, and Connecticut is one of them. There is also like Wednesday, Wednesday, or BA Beautiful, which is beautiful, and then Connect a Kit. I don't know. It's just a thought I would let you guys know of my ways of learning English. But back to it. This case began on the evening of July 21st, 1977. Prospect was this small town that by 1980 had only 6,800 residents. I have a special place in my heart for small towns. Growing up in a small town and being raised with simpler surroundings and means, it does have it, its pros and cons. You know everyone, you trust everyone, well hopefully you want to trust mostly everyone, and like I said, it's simple living. I was raised on a farm in a small town in southern Oregon and Anton was raised on a relatively small island in Florida. So we both know very well what it means to enjoy the low-key life that is not taking place in a big city. Yeah, and it's wonderful, honestly. It really is. Yeah, I agree. So on this day in July in Prospect, Connecticut, it was hot and beautiful. The Boudoir family was enjoying this summer evening swimming at a neighbor's home when their family friend, Lorne, surprises them and comes over. The kids all run to him and give him hugs and kisses and then spend the next hours of the evening all together. Lauren lived with the Boudoirs a few years back and was very close with this family and was also foster brothers with Frederick Boudoir, the father to his seven beautiful children. That is right, seven children. Frederick and Cheryl Boudoir had seven children and I will list their names and ages so you have a better idea of the family and the ages of the children. The oldest was Frederick Jr., 12 years old. Then there was Sharon, who was 10 years old, then Debbie, 9 years old, then Rod or Roderick, 6 years old, then Holly, who was 5 years old, then Mary Lou, who was 4, and then finally Paul, who was 3 years old. So was it, what, 3 boys and 4 girls or 2 boys and 5 girls? It is 4 girls and 3 boys. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Then, on this specific summer evening in July, the Boudoir family had their 6-year-old niece and cousin over for a sleepover, and her name was Jennifer Santoro. As the evening continues on, Lauren takes some of the children to pick raspberries in a nearby spot and then comes back to the home. Sources vary, but as the summer evening is winding down, Lauren heads home for the night between 8.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. I want you to remember, Lauren no longer lives with the Boudoir family, so he is leaving their home to head to his own apartment in town. Also, by this time in the evening, Frederick Boudoir is headed to work because tonight he is on the night shift where he works at the Pratt Whitney plant or factory. The kids are also all in their respective rooms and are surely falling asleep at this point in the evening. To everyone living in Cedar Hill Drive, it was a normal July evening in Connecticut, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary or odd until at around 4 a.m. on July 22nd, 
there was the sudden and overwhelming smell of smoke. And as neighbors looked out their windows, they saw that the boudoir home was engulfed in flames. Oh my word. I'm sure you're about to tell me how this happened. Yeah. And I think the only thing that can be going through like neighbors' minds at this point is where are all the kids and where's the mom? Like, are they safe? Is this just like an arson where the family was out of town? So the police and six fire trucks are immediately dispatched to the scene. Six fire trucks? Oh, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. And when personnel arrive at the home, they are fighting a mean battle with a large fire. And by the time they are able to get the flames under control, the home is gutted. Once firefighters are able to step into what is left of the home and assess the situation and see if there are actually any family members still alive or in need of help, or if there was any like members of the family in the home at all, because they don't know that, they see bodies. Oh, no. There are corpses all over the home. I cannot begin to imagine the scene that they were walking in and through. The amount of corpses everywhere in the house must have left a permanent scar in some of these individuals' minds. I know it would leave a scar in my mind. Yeah. Cheryl, the mother, her body was found in the kitchen, and personnel quickly saw that she had visible injuries to her head, but her clothes had been burned down to her skin from the fire. Bodies of three of the children were found in a bedroom to the right of the hallway. Two bodies of the children were found to the left bedroom of the hallway. One body was found in the hall, and two bodies were found in the master bedroom. All seven boudoir children, Cheryl, the mother, and Jennifer, the niece, were there and murdered. It was noted at the scene that some of the victims had their hands or feet bound, and there were some that didn't. For me, when I like read this in the sources, I think this means that the killer, whoever it was, wanted to make sure when the fire was lit, no one could leave because they were bound. So maybe he was assuming that it was a possibility that some of them could have lived through yeah. the injuries sustained and um, that they may get up when they get the fire going and but i don't know but not everyone was bound well it sounds like it was an inside job almost yeah in addition to the head wound found on the mother cheryl it appeared that all children had similar injuries they each had head wounds that closely resembled cheryl's injuries all nine victims were pronounced dead at the scene by 5:30 a.m so about an hour and a half after the fire and scene had been walked through Frederick, the father, was called and picked up at his work and taken to his mother's home, where he found out every member of his family had been killed, specifically murdered and burned horrifically. Not only had he lost his home and everything inside, but he lost every member of his direct family that lived in his home. He couldn't believe it. They were all gone. Now, at this point in the case, detectives often look to the spouse or partner because a high percentage of the time, they are the one who plays a part in a crime that's so gruesome to a family member. I mean, that's nine people who are killed. Like, what's the motive? Oh, yeah. I No idea. I mean, if he was at work, and I mean, it would have been a long while for them to be dead Yeah. as well. And like I was talking about with motive, there doesn't appear to be any motive to kill this family so what are your gut instincts right now do you think the father had something to do with it i don't think it was the father from i'm thinking it's more of lauren lauren yeah lauren i think it was him maybe but it could also just be a terrible act of violence towards the family by someone else as well you don't think like uh, the husband could have done a murder to hire against his family maybe so. he was sick of 
you Are know, you trying to give me hints right now? No, I'm just trying to see where you're no, at. No, I don't think the husband, clearly it didn't seem like the husband has anything to do with it. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, unlike most cases where the spouse either committed the crime or hired someone to, to commit the crime, the police are actually able to quickly clear Frederick of any involvement, charges, or su suspicion in the mass murder because he was actually at work during the time in, of the crimes, and they're unable to tie like any murder to hire a plot back to him to kill his family. So, this murder was the largest mass murder in Connecticut to date. So the police knew that they needed to find whoever did this and fast. Police put together one of the largest task forces that interviewed over 100 witnesses and locals within hours of the crime. They also set up a command post and stopped cars and asked if they knew anything or saw anything suspicious the night before. A recurring theme that happened in these interviews and a tip that kept appearing was that there was a man in a car that evening who was just sitting outside or driving around outside of the boudoir home and it seemed odd. And in hindsight, even more out of the ordinary since the family has now been murdered and their home burned to the ground. In addition to this tip, they knew that Lorne Aquin had been with the Boudoirs the evening before and that there were witnesses to testify of his like involvement with the yeah, family the evening there. before. But obviously those witnesses wouldn't say anything malicious because yeah. they were just having like summer activities together. Yeah, like picking raspberries. Yeah. Not only this, he was the foster brother to Frederick and was very close with the family. He was like an uncle to the children and a brother-in-law to Cheryl. Lorne, however, had a criminal background and a troubled past. Lorne, at the time of the mass murder, was actually out on parole for larceny and an attempted jailbreak. Because of his personal history with the family and now his criminal history that they know of, the police knew they needed to question him and fast. The police arrived at Lauren's apartment at around 9.30 a.m. So they are moving really quickly. Yeah, like, I mean, that's only within a few hours. Very fast, yeah. which is great to see. Yeah. And when they told him about what had happened, it was said that he showed no sign of expression. It is also said that the police questioned him three different times and at three different places. And by the end of the questioning, the police knew they had their guy. Police were even more convinced they had their killer when they found a bag of bloody clothes near the driveway and bloody shoes and socks in the back of his car. And he claims that these were from like a mugging or something that happened the night before, but it had never actually been reported to the police as a crime. Yeah. So kind of suspicious. Very suspicious. After all the questioning and interrogation, Lorne fully confessed to the nine murders and was arrested on nine counts of murder and one count of arson. Lorna Quinn is then held on a $250,000 bond and then is indicted by a grand jury in September and pleads not guilty. So two months later, he's indicted by a grand jury. Now you're probably wondering, well, what happened? How did all nine of them get killed? And here are the details that a Quinn provided in his confession. As I said earlier, he had been over at the boudoir home on the evening of July 21st and was playing with the children, berry picking, and hanging out with the family like any other normal summer day. Like, like I said, he was known to come over often because he was close with the family, so there was no red flags yeah. or concerns to be had. It was just another July evening. Yeah, just like hanging out with the bud. Yeah, picking some delicious raspberries. He leaves the home, like I said, between 8.30 p.m. and 10 p.m., and the sources do vary on this time. It's either 8.39 or he leaves at 10, so there's not like a set time. But then comes back to the home, and he enters in through the unlocked cellar door between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. My question is if people saw a car outside of the home either parked 
or driving around nervously. I am wondering if Lauren actually ever left when he said he did or if he just hung around the home in his car until 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Sources couldn't confirm this, so I'm not actually sure, but that's what I was thinking. I really think if he stuck around the house outside, that would really confirm that it was a premeditated act. Yeah. If that was him in the car or outside of the boudoir home. Nonetheless, Quinn is now in the home and turns on a light and to his surprise, sees Cheryl, the mother, walking towards him because she hears someone enter the home and a light has now been turned on, which if you're coming to do, you know, a horrific crime, why turn a light on? Yeah. Try and not make so much noise clearly I mean, entering the, the house. Yeah. And turning on a light in the middle of the night or in the early mornings of the morning. Yeah, but she must have been surprised to see that it was him. Probably didn't think it anything of it. Actually, that goes right into what I was going to say. To his dismay, she is actually not surprised to see him in the early hours of the morning in their home. Whether you are my brother-in-law or not, anyone entering my home without my permission in the wee hours of the morning or night would be a sure surprise and would not be welcomed. Unless, like, it was under serious circumstances or if I knew ahead of time. Yeah. Like, either way, I would be surprised and we would probably have, like, a machete or a gun out ready to fight. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. However, in this situation, a Quinn or Lorne tells Cheryl that he needs to grab some tools from their basement in order to fix an issue or something that was going on with his car. And again... Like at two or three in the morning, you're coming over to a family friend's home to grab tools like that couldn't wait until the following morning. Like to me, that even makes it more makes suspicious. It way worse. Yeah. yeah. So then he heads down to their basement and grabs a wrench and a couple other tools and then comes back upstairs and asks Cheryl if he can have a beer from the fridge. Cheryl quickly agrees to the request. I mean, it's not out of the ordinary. And by the time Cheryl's back is turned to him to grab the beer from the refrigerator, he is already swinging the wrench at her head. It is even more sad, but in his confession, he said that she did not scream or fight during the attack, and so he just kept going. At this point, one of the children heard the commotion or whatever was going on in the kitchen and came to check on their mom, and that is when he attacked that child with the same mechanism and force he did to Cheryl, their mother. This is what he did to each and every child in the home one by one, he beat them all with a wrench and a tire iron. When all was done, he heard Cheryl moaning in the kitchen. So Cheryl was still, still alive, alive after he had gone through all the kits. He knew that he could not have any survivors. So he stabbed her in order to confirm that she was dead. It is stated that he possibly sexually assaulted the 10-year-old daughter, but I could not confirm that in all sources. It was not like a universal variable. He then bound, like I said, some of the children and Cheryl with ties doused each of their bodies with gasoline, and then lights the home and their bodies on fire and flees the scene. Aquin claims that he actually blacked out for most of the events. The only thing he remembers was talking to Cheryl, and then he remembers blood, flames, the feeling of being scared and really hot, and then he finally comes to his senses later down the road when he's left the scene. He actually also says he doesn't even remember giving his confession. My word. That yeah. is crazy to think yeah well and then my question is if you don't remember giving your confession how valid is it yeah his foster mom frederick's mother could not believe her foster son had done this she said he didn't have a violent or criminal side to him at all and that he loved all of the boudoir children so much when lorna quinn's defense attorney gets involved 
they are very frustrated with the way that the investigators handled the situation. It is said that he was refused to get an attorney and that he was coerced into the long confession he made. Interesting. Yeah. However, it is also said that he refused his right to have an attorney and continued to talk to investigators with full knowledge that, did he, that he did not have an attorney present. Nonetheless, in October of 1979, over two years later, a Quinn's trial concluded and the jury deliberated for three days and found Lauren J. Quinn guilty on all charges. He was sentenced to 25 years to life on each murder charge and then 20 years for the arson charge. Aquin's attorney filed an appeal shortly after the conviction, but it never went through. He served his time. He never came out. And I write in some sources that he actually ended up dying in prison due to a health problem that he maintained. Well, I mean, he was going to die in prison from what it sounds like anyways, so. Yeah. And that is the story of the Boudoir family and the prospect mass murder case. My word, that was an intense confession that he had. That was, I was not seeing that coming. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? Like I said, so this happened in 1977, and it was nine people killed in a mass murder. So, like I said, this was the largest mass murder to date in Connecticut. So, it was a really big deal for Connecticut police officers and state officials. But then, it's so sad, but the next mass murder that actually took over the spot of this one was the Sandy Hook shooting that happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And it's just so sad that, you know, mass murders happen and that these things are like a regular event in U.S. history. They're just coming up even more now. Yeah. I mean, there was just a shooting the other week. I know. I don't remember where it was, but I know. it's just so sad to see. I know. Something I want to touch on is the fact that during the trial, the confession was actually used as evidence in the case, and it was actually a huge piece that got him convicted. This has been a very large point of controversy in the case because it is said that the confession should have never been submitted as hard evidence in the case if he was in fact coerced into saying what he did within the confession and without the supervision of an attorney or legal counsel present. People say that if the confession was actually left out of his trial, that a Quinn probably would have been acquitted of all charges because there was not enough evidence to prove he did it. He did it yeah. What do you think? That's, I mean, it could be, I, but if he continued on without the attorney and like they, he gave them, you know, whatever the permission to yeah. do it. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't see why it shouldn't have been submitted. It was his own fault for not wanting an attorney there yeah even if he was coerced i mean that's again his own fault for not wanting an attorney there yeah so yeah i also think that it's interesting that for me for there not to be reasonable doubt in a jury like for them to convict him on all nine charges of murder and then one charge of arson there had to have been more I, conclusive evidence yeah that led to no reasonable i doubt. will say i will say like I do kind of wish now that they would have kind of investigated a little bit more because they did move very quickly as well. And who knows? It might have been just, again, some random guy. It might not have been him um, in that car. Uh, we don't know what kind of car it was either from what it sounds like. So we don't even know if it was his car. I will say, though, the bloody clothes in the driveway and everything kind of do point more towards it being him as well. Yeah, and I think it was just a quick 
you know, selection because he had a criminal history. He was close to the family and it wasn't blood related, which that doesn't mean anything. But it was kind of like one thing that added up against another. And if he was being like suspicious in the investigation and interrogation, like show any expression. Yeah. Emotion. It's very, very pointed to where it would be him and not probably no one else. So then the next thing that a lot of people who have done investigation into this case was, okay, say he did it. What was his motive or intentions? What did he gain from this? I, I no idea. There's no idea. Maybe it was just something that switched in his brain to where, as he said, he blacked out during it. And so he just maybe not have realized what he was doing at the time until after, like you said, when he was driving home. But yeah, I think to me, these cases are the ones that really kind of like set off that internal tick where you're like, okay, uh, you know, a husband or a wife who have been cheating on their spouse and are wanting to leave for their new lover, you know, and they're like, okay, I need to get rid of my spouse somehow. Those have motive, like clear motive. It's not good motive. Like I'm not saying like, oh yeah, woohoo, go and do it. But it has some sort of motive, so you're able to get clarity on the situation. But for this poor father who lost his beloved wife, his niece, and his seven children with, like, no reason why, like, I can't imagine the depth of grief that that causes to someone who just, you know, maybe it would have helped in the closure of, like, the case. It could have been that they got Lorna Quinn and that was the closure enough that you need. But again... This case, with no motive and killing nine people, it blows my mind. It blows my mind, too. Yeah, and I think people who are really interested in true crime, it's another part that interests us because there's no motive. Well, yeah, but, I mean, it kind of happens all the time, too. Not all the time, but it does happen where just a case with no motive, Yeah, it seems like. And, I mean, who knows? I think going back to these school shootings and mass shootings, a lot of times it could be the same way. Like, they're just kind of... It's in the moment. Shooting people or killing people to kill people at that point. It could be because, you know, who knows? Maybe they didn't like that elementary school, but that wouldn't be a real good motive to go shoot up a school. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, some instances where there's motive, it's clarifying. And then somewhere there's not, it's frustrating. But if the justice system does its job, which we hope it does, and gets the right killer, then at the end of the day, there's some closure for us. Thank you for listening to Couple of Criminals. Please download, like, share with your friends and family, and subscribe. Remember, we are on Instagram and Facebook and share photos of each of the cases we review every week. So you, if you are interested in more episode content and visuals, be sure to follow us there. We look forward to you being back here next week where Anton will be reviewing a crime from Delaware, which this will officially move us out of the sea states and onto the set of the next. This is your couple of criminals signing off.